Welcome to In and Around War, a podcast of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights on contemporary issues related to wars. Episode 4 explores various pressing issues related to business and war in a conversation with Sa Benjamin Traore, who is an alumnus of the Geneva Academy. Welcome to episode four on business and war of the Geneva Academy's podcast, In and Around Wars. My name is Paula Gaeta, and I'm a professor of international law at the Geneva Graduate Institute. I'm happy today to be with my co-host, Anna Sovrin Corali. Thank you, Paula, for introducing me to our listeners, which hopefully remember me from the previous episodes of this podcast. I am Anna Corali, and I'm a teaching assistant at the Geneva Academy and a PhD candidate at the Geneva Graduate Institute. The guest of today's episode is Saab Benjamin Traoré, who is an assistant professor at the Mohammed VI Polytechnic University in Rabat, Morocco. Benjamin is also an alumnus of the Geneva Academy, and I'm particularly pleased to, to host him today because he was not only a student of mine uh, during the LLM program of the Geneva Academy, but we also worked together on a variety of projects, including for organizing a training for magistrates in uh, Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso, together with other friends and colleagues from the Antonio Cassis Initiative for Peace, Justice and Humanity. Hello, Benjamin, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Paula. Happy to be here with you. Benjamin, if I may start the conversation. First, I somehow wonder, since I think war is one of these things that we immediately link with crimes, with human suffering, but we don't necessarily immediately link it with business. Why are we even speaking about business and war today? Do you think there are any connections between these two concepts? Um, I think there is an evident connection between war and business. And this is not only something that we see in contemporary wars. Just think of the ongoing war uh, between Russia and Ukraine and, and the role that some businessmen have been playing in the launch of the war and the reaction to that situation by the international community. But we can also think of it from an historical perspective. Just think about the role of some business entities or businessmen in the launch of the Second World War, which eventually led to very interesting discussions or developments before the Nuremberg International Tribunal. So I think, obviously, there is an important connection between war and business. But I can go maybe forward to explain a little bit more how these interactions manifest themselves more clearly, or or maybe I can come back to that. I think it would be great if you could maybe give us a concrete example. And since I know that you've been researching and also publishing a lot specifically on this question in the African context, I was wondering whether you could maybe pinpoint to an example in, in Africa regarding this connection. There are two main ways in which the role of business entities can be perceived in a conflict situation or in a situation of war. The first thing is just think of the certain crimes that are committed in war situations or armed conflict situations. The scales of international crimes such as war crimes or crimes against humanity, genocide, is such important 
that you cannot imagine their commissions without the mobilization of enormous resources. And in most cases, these resources would be mobilized or the perpetrators would gain or would actually obtain these resources from private economic actors. So it makes it, especially in the African context, very clear that in most armed conflict situations, the role of businessmen or business entities in the perpetration of international crimes is quite frequent and, I would say, regular. Well, Benjamin, but correctly, you mentioned the fact that, of course, business help mobilizing the resources for conducting you know, acts of war or armed conflict. But then how it is now the role of international law in this regard, in particular, the branch of international law that is primarily relevant, not exclusively, but primarily relevant in the regulation of armed conflict, namely what we call international humanitarian law. How international humanitarian law takes the role of business into account when it comes to this illegal business or immoral business? When you look at the set of rules in international law that you mentioned, early on international humanitarian law, there are perhaps no direct obligations from this regime that directly speaks to business entities. And more generally, although it is now an issue that has long been settled that non-state actors do clear obligations under international humanitarian law, these obligations have been targeting mainly armed non-state actors. So when it comes to business entities, the question becomes a little bit more difficult. But it is clear, in my view, that there are some obligations that can be extended to business entities during armed conflict. Just think of some obligations in terms of respect for natural environment, for instance. Some of these obligations, in my view, would necessarily extend to business entities. But probably we can look beyond regime of international humanitarian law and think of all other regimes that are relevant during armed conflicts. Yeah, but before going to that, uh, we will have an opportunity to discuss uh, the other regimes. Uh, but you say something very interesting, uh, namely that uh, international humanitarian law does not expressly contain any specific obligation addressing, you know, business entities as such. But you say that this can be, the rules can be expanded to apply to these business entities as such, making a comparison with the obligations that non-state armed groups have during armed conflict. But this does presuppose for you that business entities or legal entities would have obligations under international humanitarian law and therefore they would be let's say, having legal personality or be the addressees of international humanitarian obligation. Is it what you mean? That's exactly what I mean. I know that there is a huge debate in the literature around the international legal subjectivity or personality of business entities or some multinational corporations, for instance. In my view, there are clear international obligations 
that are directly addressed to this type of legal entities. And yes, I think when you look at the regime, when you consider the international humanitarian law regime, there are some obligations that are clearly posed on non-state actors, especially armed groups. But you can easily extend that to any other type of non-state actors that intervene in a conflict situation, especially when there are acts or conducts that actually can fall within the category of a war crime, for instance. That's especially the reason why business complicity in the commission of war crimes have been highlighted in many conflict situations. So the moment that we agree that business entities can be complicit to the commission of international crimes, such as war crimes, in my view, it implies that international law, also international humanitarian law, imposes obligations on these type of entities. There is a need for conceptual clarification on these issues. A lot of work has already been done to show that in international law in general, but also in specific regimes of international law, we can find precise obligations that imposed on business entities and not only armed non-state actors. So Benjamin, you've somehow suggested that, as you said yourself, that there is an opportunity, if you like, or there is this discussion also in the literature about really the responsibilities and also, yes, somehow the responsibility of different these business entities. So what I wonder is, from your experience, from your work, what do you think are the biggest challenges, but at the same time also opportunities to hold these business entities also criminally accountable? So I think there are many challenges. The first challenge that I see is at the conceptual level. There is that persisting view that business entities do not have legal obligations under international law. This was, for instance, also favored by important milestones in this debate, such as the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, speaks instead of obligations upon business entities, they speak of responsibility, making it appear as if business entities do not have legal obligations under international law. So in that regard, I think that the first challenge is at the conceptual level. And uh, for me, again, it's very clear that international law do provide for a number of obligations on legal persons that intervene or can be involved in a conflict situation, for instance. And that's what I explained a little bit before. And how to deal with this challenge? Again, I think there is an important literature that have shown that international law can apply to non-state actors, obligations in human rights law, international humanitarian law also can be extended to non-state actors such as business uh, entities. 
Yes, it does. And uh, I tend to agree with you that, of course, there may be an issue of whether and to what extent the notion of parties to the conflict could be extended to business entities supporting the armed groups. Benjamin, you referred to the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. Is this somehow the legal framework that would be applicable also to the business activities in times of war? Or there is something else in international human rights law that would apply and cover these business activities? When it comes to business and human rights issues, the UN guiding principles on business and human rights are considered as the authoritative framework, you know, on the role of states, the role of businesses and the issue of access to remedy. In conflict situations, in conflict-affected areas, the guiding principles consider that business entities must conduct and heightened due diligence when they intervene in such a situation. Again, this is a very important statement. It's a very important principle that is reaffirmed by the UN guiding principles on business and human rights. But the thing is that the business guiding principles on business and human rights are not considered as hard law documents. They have not been adopted under treaty. And the legal value has always been debated. In that regard, I think that some of the principles that are contained in the UN guiding principles actually also the reflection of principles that exist under other regimes in international law. For that reason, it cannot just be said that they are not legally binding and everything that they have provided for cannot be taken into consideration. But when it comes to the due diligence principle, for instance, during armed conflict, there are other legal frameworks that actually reaffirm the same principle. It will be probably very long to go through all of them, but let's just mention only in the European context, there have been some specific regulations by the European Union on the role of due diligence in the supply chain when it comes to importing mining products from some conflict-affected areas, especially it is relevant for the African continent. There are also some interesting developments, and as we already mentioned, in my view, human rights treaties, international humanitarian law uh, framework can also provide interesting insight in terms of how we conceptualized these obligations during armed conflict. But you do also have specific regulations at the regional level. I have already mentioned the EU, the EU but at the AU level, for instance, sub-regional organizations such as ECOWAS have specific regulations on due diligence principle when it comes to business entities. And we do know that only in the West African context, so many business entities actually are involved in situations where a conflict isn't going. So I think we can find uh, beyond the UN guiding principles, solid grounds on which you can actually consider the existence of a due diligence obligations on business entities in conflict affected situations. So I totally agree, Benjamin. And I think it's interesting to see that actually the UN guiding principles on business and human rights 
have been used and are often actually referred as the most concrete specification of this due diligence principle. And it's used also in other spheres, if you like, or other situations of related to human rights. Now, what I wonder, you spoke about the European Union and like some concretization of this due diligence. What about the African context or maybe even other regions? Is it common to try somehow on the regional level, as you said, or is something that you foresee for the future to really narrow it down and specify what does due diligence means concretely for the business and even more so, for instance, in conflict situations? The due diligence principle is one of the most important, obviously, when it comes to taking into account business entities in conflict situations. In the African context, there has been some interesting developments in the African human rights system, especially. Let me just take the example of the African Commission, who has adopted a number of soft law instruments that are aimed at the interpretation of the African Charter on Human and People's Rights. And these documents have repeatedly reaffirmed the, the human rights obligations that imposed under the African human rights system on legal persons, such as corporations or business entities. There is a specific case that was brought before the commission, which concerns the Kilowa massacre that happened in the early 2000s in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. In that case, the African Commission handed down a decision in 2017 in which the government of DRC was considered in violation of many articles of the African Charter on Human and People's Rights. But what is interesting in this case is that the facts that were brought before the commission also concern mining company that was involved in the repression by government forces of civilians in that particular village in the DRC. So in that decision, for instance, the African Commission made it very clear that in addition to government forces, the business entity that aided and abetted government forces by providing materials, including an airplane, by supporting the repression of these civilians, this business entity was also under the obligation to respect the African Charter, especially its articles on due process, as freedom of movement, and so on and, and so forth. So I think this is a good example to show how the African human rights system can be used to actually help in the need of accountability for business entities. Benjamin, this is excellent. Thank you. Because also Professor Clapham would be very happy to have a confirmation by the African system that legal entities have human rights obligations. But this remains to human rights and the human rights framework. Go back for a moment to the question of the international regulation concerning the criminal accountability of the legal entities and in particular of business entities. As we know very well at the international level, international criminal tribunals have not been given jurisdiction 
person over legal entities, but only over natural persons. And this is a debate going on and on. And just recently, the draft articles on crimes against humanity by the International Law Commission have proposed that legal entities could be also responsible for committing crimes against humanity. We will have to wait and see what will happen with these draft articles. But there is a development also in Africa uh, concerning the possible criminal legal responsibility of business entities, which is the Malabo Protocol. No? What are the prospects, according to you, of the entry to force of the protocol and what is your view on it? The Malabo Protocol has made a dramatic change in the way the African human rights system or the African criminal law system sees the role of business entities. But I think this is something that is in line with Africa's long history of pillage of its natural resources. This has been reflected in the Malabo Protocol that was adopted as a protocol on amendment to the protocol on the statute of the African Court of Justice and Human Rights. As you rightly said, Paula, the protocol is not yet in force, unfortunately. But there is this important article on corporate criminal liability. Before that, there is the famous Article 28, which lists a number of international crimes going way beyond what we know as core international crimes and providing for other crimes such as illegal exploitation of natural resources, human trafficking, corruption. And this gave rise to a number of discussion and number of controversies on whether this was a good move or not. But what is important here regarding the conversation that we are having today, in my view, is the fact that the African human rights system or the African international criminal law system acknowledge very clearly something that has not been acknowledged at the international level with the same clarity, the criminal liability of business entities. This is Article 46 of the draft treaty. And it's interesting, although we may find some shortcomings in terms of how this article is written, but it's interesting how the article actually tries to clarify the different element of such criminal responsibility in terms of actus reus, the material element, and mens rea, the psychological element. So I think this is a very interesting move. Whether the protocol will be adopted in the near future, that I don't know, but it's a great signal as to the issue of business responsibility in the African context. And I think that it has already helped in terms of development in some domestic laws regarding some of the plans that the, the protocol provides for. What you say, namely the fact that the Malabo Protocol, although not yet in force, has given already a good example of the importance for Africa of the principle of criminal accountability of business entities. Differently from other contexts, such as in Europe or in other regional contexts, this has not happened yet. I guess that this is because these business entities are mainly you know, from the global north and they may perhaps create some pressure in avoiding the principle is um, Accepted at international level? What's your view on that? I do think that this is the key to the understanding of the weakness 
of the international legal framework that exists today to hold into account business entities for the human rights violations in general, but specifically in conflict situations. But this is a very general challenge to the direction, I would say, of a solid legal framework that constrains business entities at the international level. I do think that the reason is that these business entities come from what we call global north and developed countries. And these countries have been big players in how the national system deals with business obligations. Just an example on the ongoing process regarding the adoption of a treaty on transnational corporations and other business entities. So this process has been going on literally since 2014. And so far, there is no serious prospect of seeing the adoption of an international binding instrument because the process has been boycotted by Western countries, especially. And sometimes even there was so much pressure on the countries that were leading that process, especially from the United States. When you look even at the developments that are supposed to happen at regional level, the European Union has been very slow in adopting binding instruments that would constrain so many European companies intervening abroad, especially in, in Africa. So I think power dynamics actually intervene, and you can clearly see here the linkages between private economic interests, reflects of making profit at all costs, and the legal policies adopted by Western governments. So there is clearly a collusion of interest that makes it very difficult to obtain clear legally binding uh, rules on business and human rights. And I do agree with you, Paula, this is one of the key challenges that we face in this field in terms of accountability. Yes, Benjamin, I totally agree with you, but I also somehow hope that other contexts in the future will feel inspired by the steps taken in the African continent and specifically regards to Malabo Protocol. And I just want to highlight that the national domestic criminal systems always have an option to at least prosecute individual businessmen involved in the commission of different crimes at countries in war, which, for instance, already happened, for instance, in Holland with regards to businessman Uvenhoven. Just to conclude somehow on a positive note. And to add another positive note to what Anna just mentioned, not all individual businessmen can be prosecuted at the national level for their involvement in criminal activities through business, but also at the international level. If the relevant international criminal courts and tribunals have jurisdictions, but we should not also forget that at the national level, there may be the possibility also to go criminally against business entities if the legal system so Provides. And there is an interesting development, for instance, in France, where a few cases have been opened against the companies involved in the Syrian conflict, for instance, the Lafarge case and other cases as well. But this is at the national level when the possibilities offered, the opportunity shall be taken. That's our point. And let's hope that also at the international level, the rule will be then finally accepted of the criminal responsibility of legal entities. If I may just also second you on that positive note, I think you are totally right. I do think that the two systems 
actually are not isolated and the conversation that is going on at the international level today do influence what is also happening in domestic systems. And this is perhaps also a great opportunity to acknowledge the great work that is done by civil society organizations, by some NGOs, by individuals that want to see things evolving in that sphere, especially in domestic context. So I think these are two sides of the, the same coin. And it's important that the conversation continues at the international level to be sure that we can also get interesting outcomes at the national levels. This is great, Benjamin. And I think it would be interesting to repeat this conversation again in a couple of years to see what has changed since this is such a dynamic and hopefully promising field. And to conclude this conversation, what we always do, we ask our guests whether they have any unforgettable experience from their time at the Geneva Academy since you are an alumnus of the Geneva Academy. Would you be able to share one with us? Yes, of course. <laughs> I think one of the best things that I can remember was when I arrived at the, the Geneva Academy and Paula was the director. I went to the, I don't know if it was her office, and I had to pick up a number of books that were already prepared for me. I must confess that I came late as many African students' visa issues, I was late. And when I came, I had a lot of books that were prepared for me. And uh, that was the, the very first. And I was so happy, especially to have books on the International Court of Justice, but especially the one of the books from Giovanni uh, Di Stefano, that was a compendium of decisions of the International Court of Justice. So we used to have excerpts of these decisions when I was back in Burkina Faso. And to be able to have all the decisions in one document or many of them in one document that I could read, you know, throughout my days was something amazing. But these things were just accessible on the website and I didn't know when I was in Bukila. <laughs> <laughs> but they were compiled and by Professor Di Stefano. They were all together and conceptualized. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Benjamin, for this souvenir of Geneva, and thank you for giving us so much food for thought. Thought for food, I never know what is the correct way of putting it. And uh, to our listeners, thank you for being here with us. We hope that we have enjoyed this episode as much as we have enjoyed interviewing Benjamin. And I remind you that you can listen to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcast. And uh, we hope that you tune in again for the next episode and the last one of the season. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Bye. You've been listening to In and Around Wars, a podcast of the Geneva Academy of International Humanitarian Law and Human Rights. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe and stay tuned for more inspiring conversations with Geneva Academy alumni. You can also check the Geneva Academy's website at www.geneva-academy.ch to find more resources and upcoming events on contemporary issues of international humanitarian law and policy.